Hello again. We are now back for episode 11, part 2 for Louisiana history. And of course, this is time with Miss Babin. And in this particular podcast, we are just going to be talking about some people. I call them the cast of characters for the Battle of New Orleans, or as the British called it, the uh, invasion of the lower Mississippi River Valley. And I think that really is a good way of describing it, because what I want you all to understand is that people talk about the Battle of New Orleans, and the Battle of New Orleans, (laughs) it's key. But this was an entire expedition of the British, and Leading up to the actual battle in January, there were several other battles that happened before that Battle of New Orleans on Chalmette Field, and they all contribute to what ultimately happens at New Orleans on that foggy morning in which approximately half an hour to 45 minutes, we have this tremendous American victory. You do have a video you'll be watching about this, but before you watch the video, I wanted to give you a little bit of background information on some of these individuals, and uh, because these are some interesting people, and I can tell you there have been writings done on all of them individually and collectively, because they were um, they they were significant people of their day, especially many of these individuals who we're going to talk about. And they're worthy of notice. But they all come together at Louisiana in the winter of 1812. And the results really do change the United States. So let's start talking about some of these people. Well, the first person I'm going to talk about is the British Admiral Admiral Alexander Cochran. He is in charge of the British fleet that is sent to Louisiana. Now, this this was an experienced commander. He had fought in many naval battles. He had fought with the hero of the British Navy, Nelson, before he died in battle. And he was just a very, very, very good commander. He was very confident, maybe overly confident, in terms of the British ability to win in this uh, invasion with the Americans. He was noted and recorded to have said that um, if the army doesn't do it, my sailors will in terms of how they were going to win in Louisiana. So he is going to be this commander who's going to be extremely confident that his naval group will be able to take over Louisiana. He is joining command, and the true commander of the expedition is our second person that I'm going to talk about, and that is General Edward Pakenham. Pakenham was a British military hero. He had served in the Army from the time he was very young. He was trained to be a soldier, and he was... Uh, one of the leaders of the British Army. He worked with the highest uh, order of the command. He was one of the heroes of the Battle of Waterloo, which was the final victory that really ended Napoleon's attempts at um, controlling Europe. 
And he was very, very experienced. And again, he was a very brave man. He really was a brave man. And he was a good commander. And he is going to be leading this extremely large force of the British soldiers as they come to Louisiana. Well, let's talk about those British soldiers. Well, I'm going to tell you something. They were, without a doubt, the strongest military force in the world of the time. They had proven it. They had fought for years, and I do mean years, against uh, the French armies and their allies. They had very, very hard times. They had times when they were losing. But under their leadership and because of their determination, they won and they became an extremely efficient and very, very strong fighting force. They are probably one of the strongest armies uh, that was ever placed on the field, maybe ever in military history. And I say this in all honesty, and I don't, you've never heard me use this word before. These men were warriors because of all they had been through to defeat Napoleon. And the Battle of Waterloo is one of the most important battles in world history. And it was horrible. It was a three-day battle. And I mean, it was just terrible. And these were the people who won it. And they are going to be the soldiers who are going to be coming to Louisiana. And they are used to winning. And they are not known for being gentle and kind to the people who they defeat. And they are coming to Louisiana. So now you have bearing down on Louisiana, two very experienced commanders, an excellent Navy, and the strongest army in the world. And they're coming to Louisiana. Well, Claiborne is governor. Sometimes I feel sorry for Claiborne. He had a tough time. But he learns of this attack. And once again, we're going to see Claiborne's ability to deal with people, his ability to work to bring groups together that you might think would not work well. When he learns that Jackson is coming uh, to Louisiana, he reaches out to him. He sends him a letter. And in the letter, he told him, he said, listen, when you get here, here are a few things you need to know. The people in Louisiana are good, but they can be challenging to deal with. They can be downright difficult. So when you come here, be prepared for that. Work to get them on your side. And if you can get them on your side, they are going to stand with you. But know that you're going to have to do that. And so Claiborne works with him to get him to help Jackson. And they really were very effective. Another person whose name is going to come up is Captain Henry Miller Shreve. He's the fourth person, uh, the fifth group we're talking, or individual we're talking about. Captain Henry Miller Shreve, remember, he is the person for whom Shreveport is named. And he has just been involved in clearing that big long j- log jam that opens up the Red River and eventually Shreveport becomes what Shreveport is today. Well, when Shreve heard that the um, the British were coming. He comes. He gets on his barge that he used to open up the log jam. He comes down with a group of people and volunteers to help. And one of the things he is going to do is Jackson says, "Okay, 
you need to get us some supplies. So that is one of the things he does is he immediately and very quickly goes north and gets supplies for Louisiana. But he will also be involved in protecting uh, Louisiana along the Mississippi River. But now we come to some other people who are along the Mississippi River and the Gulf of Mexico, and that's the Baratarian pirates. But don't call them pirates. Okay? Uh, We're going to start talking about the leaders of this group, and that is, of course, Jean Lafitte. Jean Lafitte um, and his brother, Pierre, are the leaders. Jean is really the capitan. He is really the leader. His family were refugees to Louisiana from Santo Domingo. His mother remarried. And Jean Lafitte, when he was he was a kid, when he was little, he spent almost all of his free time in Piro's out on the water. And he could navigate all of that area of the lower Mississippi River from the mouth. He knew all the inlets. He knew the bayous, he knew, knew the swamps, he knew the rivers. It was said that no one could travel through the lower Mississippi River and knew it better than Jean Lafitte, which of course was very helpful in his chosen career. His brother Pierre was older, and Pierre had actually become a privateer and then Jean joined him, and they formed the Baratarian Pirates, as they were called. If you go to New Orleans, you will see the Lafitte Blacksmith Shop. They owned that blacksmith that blacksmith shop, and they it was a blacksmith's business, but it was also how they operated out of when they were in New Orleans. Another person who is significant to this is a man named Dominique Hugh. Now, some historians have said that Dominique Hugh is the half-brother of the uh, Lafitte's or the stepbrother of the Lafitte's, but that is incorrect. Dominique Hugh was born in France, and he was actually a, an officer in the, British Na- I'm sorry, the French Navy. And when they went to Santo Domingo, uh, his whole crew was stricken with yellow fever, and he was one of the few survivors. And he actually did leave the French Navy and he moved down or moved up into Louisiana and he will be a partner of the Lafitte's in working with the Baratarians. So what is the history of this? Well, the first thing you need to understand is nobody ever called Jean Lafitte a pirate, at least not to his face. He would not forgive you if you did. What Jean Lafitte was, was in fact a privateer. And private countries had privateers at this time, but he was the most effective. He was the best at it. And what the, the Baratarians were privateers. And what that means is they would be hired by a country and they would, for that country, flying under that country's flag, they would go and they would attack the merchant or shipping vessels of that country's enemies. And so, for example, Lafitte worked for France and he would get a document and the name of the document was called a letter of Mark, M-A-R-Q-U-E, a letter of Mark. And as long as he had that document, 
he had the legal permission to go and attack the merchant ships of France's enemy. So he would attack the British and he would attack the Spanish. And he would take all the goods off of their ships. Now, what did this do? Well, what it did is it freed France's navy to do the business of fighting the war and not trying to actually stop the trade. Now, Lafitte said, I never went after an American ship. I never did it because I'm an American. And so he swore he never attacked American ships. But Lafitte was a good businessman. And what Lafitte, while his, uh, his privateering was not illegal, and remember, he, would, he worked for all different countries. Whoever hired him and gave him that letter of mark, he would work for. But what he did is he would take the goods, and this is what he did that was illegal, is he would bring those goods and smuggle them into New Orleans, and he would sell them there. Now listen to what he did. And think about how you might go shopping sometimes. He actually had a large warehouse style of store. And he would put his privateered goods, and they were smuggled in so they didn't have to pay taxes. He, that was the illegal act. But he would put the goods for sale in his warehouse store. And people could go there, and because there were no taxes on them, and he hadn't paid anything for them, they would go shopping and they would get cheaper prices for it. Sound familiar? Warehouse shopping, cheaper prices, buying in bulk. Jean Lafitte did this in the early 1800s. The name of his warehouse store was called The Temple. And people would travel from all miles around and they would go shopping at The Temple. Now, you might say, oh, my gosh, they're buying these goods from this boat. But remember, the Louisianians, you know, we remember how their attitude was towards trade laws and trade regulations. They've always had kind of a loose attitude towards that. So for, the, for them, it wasn't that big of a deal. Jean Lafitte became extremely wealthy. He had a house in New Orleans. He socialized with people. Some say he even did have a shop in Royal Street to sell his goods to his upper crust friends. But how does Jean Lafitte get involved in the Battle of New Orleans? Well, what has happened is that a very eager commander against what Claiborne said actually went in and raided the Baratarians in their hideout. And they arrested them. Jean Lafitte was not there and he was not arrested. But Pierre was in prison and so was Dominique Hugh and several of the sailors. And they confiscated the goods and they confiscated their ships. Well, at this time, the British approach, they approach Jean Lafitte and they make him an offer. They say, if you will take the British army and lead us into New Orleans, we'll make you a captain in the British Navy and we'll pay you $50,000. Now, if you don't, then we're going to come and we're going to, again, find out where you're hiding and we're going to destroy anything that you've got left. So the British were really putting pressure on Jean Lafitte and the British treated him like a pirate. 
which you just don't do. And Jean Lafitte, he didn't want to help them in the first place. But after they treated him that way, he was not going to help them. And he said, well, let me think about this. This is a big deal. Give me two weeks. And the British said, fine. Their representatives said, fine. Well, in those two weeks, Jean Lafitte goes and he meets with a friend of his who is a member of the Louisiana State Legislature. I told you he had a house in New Orleans and socialized with people. And I mean, he knew all these people and they knew him. And Jean Lafitte told him what the British had said. And so that legislature went to Claiborne and Claiborne and Jean Lafitte met and they basically made an agreement. And Lafitte wanted to help the Americans, but he wasn't going to do it for nothing. So Claiborne agreed to let all of the people out of jail, the Baratarians out of jail, and they would have amnesty. Now, remember, Claiborne had not wanted them raided because Claiborne understood how the people felt about the Lafitte's, and he knew he was not going to stop what the Lafitte's were doing, even though he asked them to not attack Spanish ships. But Claiborne, he understood. So Claiborne made this agreement, and Lafitte, what did they bring to the um, Battle of New Orleans? Well, the first thing they did is they brought cannons. The Americans had no artillery. So they brought these cannons that they had had on their ships and that they had removed from some of the other ships they had captured, and they brought them. Remember, Dominique Hugh was a gunner. That was what he did in the French Navy. So he was an officer. So you have Dominique who is an expert in artillery. And these pirates, they know how to do that. So now you have an artillery for the uh, American forces when the British are coming. They also supply men and they supply guns and they supply ammunition. And they have a lot of it. And the Americans had very little. So a lot of the ammunition, the guns, the way the Americans are armed are from the Baratarians. And really, I think Jean Lafitte would have probably done what he did anyway. But because of the way the British acted, he was really going to uh, support the Americans. So now you have the, these Baratarians who are there and who know how to fight. Another person we need to talk about is Gabriel Villaray. Uh, yes, and that name is familiar. This goes all the way back to the Spanish and the uh, rebellion, uh, the Creole Rebellion. That was his great-great-grandfather who led that. Well, the Lafitte's actually owned a plantation eight miles south of New Orleans. It was called the Villaray Plantation. And the British, a, a British force, was sent out ahead of everyone, and they move up along this uh, area, and they come to the Villaray Plantation. And what they want to do is dig a canal that they're going to have their boats travel up to get to New Orleans. But they come to the Villaray Plantation, and they surprise everyone, and they basically capture this personal residence. And they hold everyone there captive. And so the Villarays are trapped on this plantation. And Gabriel Villaray, who is there with his brother, 
They're sitting on near where the veranda is, the porch of the house, and the window is open, and he takes his chance, and Gabriel Villaray jumps out of the window, and he starts to run the eight-mile trek to New Orleans to warn the Americans that the British are that, this group of British are that close. And when he's going, and this is a story that's told through Louisiana history, he's running along and his favorite hunting dog sees him. Well, those of you who have dogs, you know what happens when you start running. They start running after you. The British soldiers are running after Villaray. So here's Villaray running, his dog is chasing him, and those soldiers are coming up. Villaray climbs up into an oak tree so that the British won't see him, but his dog stops at the base of the tree and is barking towards him. Villaray had no choice but to come down from the tree, and he did have to uh, put his dog down, and he very quickly buried the dog and reclimbed the tree, and the British passed under him. He got down from the tree, and he ran to New Orleans and warned uh, Jackson and Claiborne that the British there was a British force eight miles down the road. Now, is this important? Yes. Something else happens at the Villaray Plantation as well. Uh, the commander, and it was Cochran, I believe, told him, um, told the people, talk, talk to the individuals you have captured there. Listen to the things they say. Eavesdrop on their conversations. Well, the people at the Villaray Plantation figured out what the British were doing. And they, then the British start asking him, well, how many, how many are there in, the, uh, in New Orleans? How many soldiers are there? Well, they didn't have but maybe a, a few, maybe a thousand American forces there. You need to understand the British are going to be bringing 14,000 people. And the, peop- and the people at the Villaray plantations, the, the captives, they kind of realize what's going on. And so they tell the British, oh, well, they have like 10,000 soldiers. And they, I mean, they're lying through their teeth. But they tell the British that there's 10,000. And the commanding officer, he doesn't know what to believe. So he decides to wait at the Villaray plantation for more of the soldiers, the British soldiers to come. This is really important because if they had gone on to New Orleans, there was no preparation and New Orleans would have been captured by a very small force. And that would have been the end of it. But because of Gabriel Villaray's dash eight-mile run to New Orleans and the deception of the people at the house, it stopped the British and gave the Americans time. So now we need to talk about Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson is an amazing person. Uh, he He lived in Tennessee. He was born in Kentucky. And um, he saw a lot of his family killed during the American Revolution. And he actually, when he was not much older than you, um, had a confrontation with a British soldier. And a British soldier demanded of Andrew Jackson that he get on his knees and polish his boots, the officer's boots. And Andrew Jackson, he was tough. And he said he wasn't going to do it. And the British officer... Uh, pulls out his sword 
And at the top of the sword, you have the hilt of the sword, uh, which is large and heavy. And he hit Andrew Jackson across the side of his face, and it created a very large gash. And Andrew Jackson, in some paintings you see it, in some you don't. But Andrew Jackson had a scar down the side of his face his, his entire life. Andrew Jackson had no love of the British because he had seen what happened to his family during the American Revolution and his own personal experience. So Andrew Jackson is going to be this soldier sent. Andrew Jackson in his career was a lawyer. He was a U.S. House of Representatives member, and he had been a member of the U.S. Senate. After he left that life of public service, he was a judge, and he was the chief justice of the Tennessee Supreme Court. So here is this raised frontiersman who has gone through all of these roles in his life, and now he is the head of the Tennessee militia. And he, as we said, was sent to Horseshoe Bend. When he is sent to New Orleans, he takes Claiborne's advice, and he meets the people of New Orleans in what becomes Jackson Square, and he speaks to them. And as he speaks, he has on one side of him a French interpreter, and on the other side of him, he has a Spanish interpreter. And everything he says, every sentence, he pauses, and it is interpreted to French, and it is interpreted into Spanish. He is one of the first people to use that kind of approach, translation, to contact the people and talk to them. And he wins their confidence and tells them that they can do this and he needs them to come together. And they do. And just to let you know how dedicated he was, is when soldiers start coming into New Orleans, they've been fighting on the frontier, some of them with Jackson, and they needed clothes. And so women in New Orleans got together and they were making them clothes, literally sewing clothes for the soldiers to wear. And they started to hear word that the British were coming. And the women were concerned. And they said, you know, what's going to happen when these British get here? Because the French were worried because they were French. And the British had just defeated the French in Europe. And so one of the women sends a message to um, Jackson and says to him, what what's going to happen? And Jackson responds with one of the most famous quotes ever and a phrase that people still use today. He says very simply, no British soldier shall enter this city as an enemy unless it is over my dead body. That is where that phrase comes from. Jackson in preparation for the Battle of New Orleans. When the people of Louisiana hear this, they are completely behind him. Because really, how many times in their history has anyone ever said that for the people of Louisiana? They believed him and they supported him. And now we have the American forces. Some people call the Americans ragtag. 
Nah, they're just Louisianians coming together. It was quite a group. You did have some regular army. 58 Marines show up, those that will become the beginning of the Marines. Some sailors. A Louisiana militia that's made up of Americans, Creole, Acadians, Germans, Haitian immigrants, and free blacks. Tennessee militia. A group of Kentucky militia show up. And even some people from Mississippi and some Choctaw Indians. They have two ships and one steamboat. That's what makes up the American forces. It numbers 4,732 people. And they will go up against a force of over 14,000. And that is the cast of characters for what becomes this invasion of New Orleans. I hope this has given you a little insight into the people and just on both sides, how brave these people were. Both sides of this conflict is filled with brave people. And when you look at the Battle of New Orleans and this invasion, we'll see how it turns out. On Thursday for our office hours from 9 to 10, I hope you will be there because I will go over the answers to the review questions. We'll do a review of those and I'm going to fill in some gaps from the video that's going to be posted for you to watch.